uh, Rex knows that I need help, and so he <laughs> says in, he's an engineer. So the engineers, are there any engineers? Okay, I'm sorry, brother. I, I actually, I apologize to your wife. I mean, engineers are such, they're really special. They're just, and so you'll see the illustration. In civil engineering construction, buildings are built with two types of walls, load-bearing and non-load-bearing. As the label would suggest, some walls can be moved, removed, or modified without affecting the overall integrity of the building structure. Load-bearing walls provide the foundation upon which the building is constructed. So I'm reading this thinking, what is with these engineers? Why can't they just speak English? But anyway, uh, when an earthquake or natural disaster strikes, it is these load-bearing walls that engineers check first to ensure the safety of those residing within. All the photos that folks have sent me during my deployment are taped to the wall above my bed. This is my load-bearing support wall. So that's the point. Isn't that a good one? It's uh, the reminder of why I'm here, the people that support me, the faith that keeps me going, and the assurance that I will be welcomed home with open arms regardless of what befalls me over here. Thanks to everyone who has contributed to my support wall. I look forward to meeting each and every one of you and seeing many new faces when I return. Rex. Isn't that good? So thank you for praying for him. And of course, we will welcome him when he returns for sure. They go through a lot. My uh, middle son and his wife are with us just for another day. They... uh, uh, where he was granted a little leave. He's at Fort Bragg, and the 82nd Airborne got back on 9-11 from Afghanistan. And uh, they couldn't be here for Christmas, but they, their commander let him go for a few days. And so um, I asked him, we had private conversation. His name is Grant, and I said, Grant, uh, are you experiencing any residual effects from, from being there? And he said, yeah, I don't talk about it too much, but um, crowds uh, are rough on us. Um, he was going to come today, but he said, I'm not ready for for the crowds. And he said, loud noises, we jump. Um, sleeping is sometimes a problem. And so uh, um, they go through a lot, these service members who, who represent us well and uh, they see they see horrific things and are under fire and all the rest so we just want to be sensitive that's all to these military members when they come back and treat them with care and gentleness and understanding and their and their families as well the families have to adjust to the fact that sometimes they need a little more alone time than normally sometimes they don't want to talk about the situation. Sometimes they need to talk about the situation. You know, that's just the way it is. There are a number of you who are military people and you know what's going on. So it's a rough day. What about Connecticut? Um, we, we want an explanation. Why? And we fall short. There is none adequate uh, to, to, to explain such a horrific... Uh, e- eventuality. Um, what do you do? What do you do? What do ministers do? What do what? We ache. 
We don't preach down. We don't blame. We don't look for quick explanations and fixes. We say, oh God, come near, Lord Jesus. The people there need him. For nobody else can deliver the helps he can deliver. We have sadly succeeded in asking God to remove himself from our classrooms. Maybe through times like this, he'll be invited back into the public sector. We have de-godded America. And we're in trouble. Uh, there's no restraint in human behavior. When I was a kid, we didn't hear of things like this. Clackamas Town Center in Oregon. Movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. Children shot in Newtown, Connecticut. We, just didn't, we didn't have these things when I grew up. Things are changing and not for the better. So we want to ask for God to make himself known and be available and for people to cry out for him. We think of the children also. The school principal came out of a meeting and hearing things was shot, school psychologist. Uh, what about the surviving children, little ones? How are they going to cope? I don't know how. We have to ask God to help. What about the parents, relatives, and all the rest? This is not time to affix blame. Our president has done the right thing, wonderful thing, affected emotionally himself, though the leader of the nation, he's just a human. Invoking scripture, wonderful, in attending the services in Connecticut, stopping all that the President of the United States has to do. This is a time when we rally together and we pray. What about the relatives of the shooter? Don't you want to just find them responsible? Don't go there. He has a brother, he has a father. Uh, don't come up with quick explanations to something that defies explanation. Just pray. Just pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. So now we talk to you. For you are near. And a very present help in time of trouble. We know this. What about others? Oh God. But for your grace. Where would we be? We judge no one. Look down on no one. Have no arrogant sermons to preach. We're just asking you for mercy and grace on behalf of that community. And by definition, mercy is not something we deserve. Grace is not something we earn. Therefore, that's the basis of our appeal. Grace and mercy. Oh God, would you please shower upon that community helps from on high so clearly attributable to you that people turn to you. When we think of the surviving children and wonder about what hope there is for them, you are the God of all hope. We pray you would rescue them from the situation and that somehow they and adults in the community would be directed to you like never before. Oh, God, we don't know where to turn but to you at times like this. We have no explanation and we're fearful of this kind of thing happening again and again. And our people, our leaders are doing, I think, the absolute best they can to keep these things from happening. But we're finding we're not able. Oh, God, 
Would you be our rock and our stronghold? And would you, and we don't know how this can be done, but it can. Would you use this for good purposes? No, God, even as we ask that, I mean it. We don't know how any good could come from this, but you seem to be able to do that sort of thing. Lord Jesus, we pray for your supernatural grace and comfort and that what's happening through clergy and churches over there would direct people to you. Nothing fluffy, nothing flippant, no positive thinking. How about a relationship new, fresh with you? Oh, God, we need mercy and helps these days. Would you please be merciful to us? And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, we finished Luke in in Psalm 31, and I think it's timely. I'll tell you why. It will relate to the circumstance. I'm not moving too quickly from what happened in Connecticut to Bible study. Bible study will move us to Connecticut. That's the beauty of God's Word. It's relevant and applies. Why Psalm 31? Well, we finished Luke, and in between books uh, of a more substantial nature, we've decided to treat a few of the Psalms. Uh, Brother Chuck and I uh, went through with you in times past all of the first 30 Psalms, and then some of you kind of got tired of it and and gave us some helpful input, I would say. So we departed and decided to punish you with six years of Luke or something. (laughs) So we'll do a few of the Psalms beginning in verse 31 and then go into another book, and we're thinking a shorter now Old Testament book, and many of you have made suggestions, Micah, Hosea, Nahum, some of these, we haven't come to a resting place yet, and your input is valuable. In fact, one of the reasons we're doing Psalms is that one of the ladies, I don't know if it was in this class or the next, suggested, why don't you go back and do a few of the Psalms for a while? So that's what we're doing. Psalm 31. See where it says, for the choir director? That's not an editorial comment. That's inspired scripture. Isn't that interesting? You wouldn't think that notation would be part of inspired scripture, but it is. It's found in the original manuscripts for the choir director. Why? This was a song. It's kind of an interesting song book, the Psalms, don't you think? Because they don't only sing about happy times. They think about sad, difficult times, as you'll see. How do you sing about unhappy? Why not? Uh, You'll see David felt the permission to address all issues, good times, bad times. Songs were a wonderful device. It helped them remember words. So this was a song for the choir director. And we know it's a psalm of David. There are 150 psalms. Sometimes we think all are written by David. That's not true. He wrote most. Other psalms are attributable to others. Sometimes they're named. Someone named Asaph wrote some of the psalms. I have no idea who that is. Others are unnamed. But we know for certain, no question, this one was a song written by David, psalm of David. In you, he says, O Lord, I have taken refuge. So there's the answer. No, there's the response to Connecticut for us. You see it? In you, I have to, it's not a program. It's not looser gun control laws. It's not tighter gun control laws. We can have that discussion in the public before, but that's not it. That's cosmetic. We don't run to legislation. We don't run to a better alarm system. I'm not saying these things are wrong, but that's not it. Those are cosmetic. We run not to a program, not to a philosophy. We run to a person. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. So my fellow Christians, this is our privilege. Take advantage of it. Run to him. 
with an aching heart, a fearful heart, an unsettled heart, a, a praise-worthy heart, whatever it is, run to him and say, Oh God, this great privilege of mine to know you as refuge, would you bestow it upon others in places like Connecticut? That's what we do. In you, oh Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In so many words, David is saying, I will never be ashamed. Ashamed of what? Running to God as refuge. Some would say, you're wasting your time, Bible people, Christians, foolish, putting your confidence in an unseen God. He's invisible to you. You've not heard him audibly. He's not literally wrapped his arms around you. Why are you wrapping your arms around him? One day you'll find out this faith of yours is just pie in the sky stuff. It's imaginary. No, David knows I'll never be ashamed. And this is true. In the end, folks, we will find out that confidence in almighty God was well-placed. There'll be no cause for shame. And then he says, in your righteousness, deliver me. The people of today would say, in my righteousness, deliver me. <laughs> so many today are laying claim to their own virtue. <laughs> there ain't none. One of the things God is showing us with this succession of tumultuous events worldwide is that our nature is to sin. Please do not be deceived about it. We are not good people who make bad choices. We are sinful people who sometimes do good things. Inherently, however, we have an inclination to sin. Therefore, David, do you notice, he doesn't put his confidence in anyone or thing else. In you I've taken refuge. And nor does he lay claim to his own virtue, virtue as the basis thereof. It's on the basis of God's righteousness. You see? Incline your ear to me. He doesn't take for granted that God will listen, <laughs> nor should we. He will, but just don't take it for granted. Oh, God, incline your ear. It's just a figurative expression. Give me your attention. Transcendent deity, most high God, high and lifted up. Will you listen to puny old, little old me? Yeah. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Have you ever prayed something like that? You know, you know God's going to be there for you in the end, but you need him like now. So this is a time-limited word, quickly. I don't know what David's immediate situation was, but it wasn't pleasant. He's desperate, as you will see. Therefore, he's essentially saying, I don't have time. I'm going to go under. Maybe you have felt that way. Maybe it's not true. Maybe you just felt that way. What's the difference? It looks like you're permitted to utter something like this. Oh, God, I need you now. Rescue me quickly, David says. Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. But wait, isn't God those very things? Isn't God a rock of strength? Isn't he a stronghold? Isn't David asking God to be who God is? Yes. So why is he doing it? So let me introduce this topic. We are reading in Psalm 31, not merely the language of reason. We are reading the language of emotion. Both are given by God. You have a mind to think and a heart to feel. We Christians seem to legislate the expression of emotion. 
Meaning, some emotions are legitimate, others are not. So a lot of our emotions go underground. They're buried but alive. So there's a lot of seething feelings in the lives of Christians, and we don't feel the permission to express them, lest someone say you lack faith. But there is a difference between a crisis of faith, crisis of faith, Jesus is fictitious. He doesn't live. There is no heaven. There is no hell. The Bible's not God's word. Christ, that's a crisis of faith. But that's different than a crisis of emotion. Even people of faith can have a crisis of emotion. You'll see it in the Psalms. Even people of faith can have a crisis of emotion. And when even a person of faith is having a crisis of emotion, sometimes the language of emotion takes over. So you're not operating in terms of your intellect and reason about theological truths. You're operating out of a hurt and broken heart. And God does not tell us to force it underground. It's only other Christians sometimes who tell us. You're not permitted that emotion. You shouldn't feel that way. Chin up. God uses all things for the good. Don't you believe in him? So that's a terrible thing to tell someone who's hurting at the time. Language. You are parents or grandparents. Have you ever had a little kid look you in the eye, one of your own, and say, I hate you? I hate you, mommy. I hate you, daddy. I'll tell you what you do. You know they don't mean it. You know they're speaking the infantile, childlike language of emotion because you probably denied them something they think is good for them, like candy before dinner. They don't get it. But you don't take time to explain principles of nutrition to them. You would if you could, but they can't comprehend. So therefore, you just require that they trust you. But they don't trust you fully. Why? Because they're childlike. They haven't had enough time with you yet. Over time, they'll look back and see how trustworthy you were. And what you said to them, you meant for their good. It's the same with us and God. Hence, the Bible calls us little children. We believe in him and yet not fully. Oh, wrong God. we fully believe in him as the source of pardon and forgiveness for our sin, but we don't trust him with life issues fully yet. We trust him with eternity, but not with our lives. Why? Because we haven't had enough experience walking with him as father yet. He knows this. That's why the expression being born again is such a good one. We're born into this relationship and we're experiencing it more and more and more. And so sometimes we express to God, particularly at points of loss, in so many words, the same thing. I hate you. We may not say that, but we may. We may withdraw. We may be angry. We may, whatever the deal is, language of emotion. We don't want him to go from us, and we don't want to go from him. But something has befallen us, and it affects us emotionally, and so that gets in the way. So what you're seeing in Psalm 31 is what I call the ebb and flow of faith the ebb and flow, the ups and downs of faith as a result of emotion, the emotions of hurts in life, ebb and flow. So you see on the one hand, David praising God. On the other hand, David crying. <laughs> on the other hand, David declaring a truth about God. On the other hand, uh, 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 David asking God. Look, verse 2, oh God, be to me a rock and a stronghold. But look at verse 3. For you are my rock and my fortress. See it? Do you know what some people say? This is illogical. Verse 2 and verse 3. What? 
Why do you ask God to be something in verse 2 when you know by virtue of your declaration in verse 3 that he is what you asked him to be? That's the ebb and flow of faith and emotion and all the rest. That's the way it is. You are my rock, my fortress. Some say illogical. That's not true. These are, uh, this is the vacillating language of, you know, emotions are tricky. Emotions are tricky things. Thoughts are easier, but emotions are really, really tricky things. Why am I emphasizing this? Because we Christians stink at experiencing openly and permitting the open expression of emotion. We force it underground. You can't be depressed. You can't be worried. You can't cry. You can't hurt. You can't question God because somebody's going to come alongside of you and saying, why don't you believe? Why don't you believe? And you're going, wait a second, I do. I just got run over by a doggone truck. I believe, but I'm crushed. Can I express that? Yeah, you can. David did. You know who David is? A man after God's own heart. He could do it. We could do it. Great. Greg said something I think really excellent. He knew, David knew that God was his rock and his fortress, but he needed to see God act on his behalf. I agree with you. As do we. As do we. So anyway, um, here he is declaring what he asked God for in verse 2. You're my rock and my fortress. And then this. This is so good for you to take home with you. For your name's sake, he says, you will lead me and guide me. For your name's sake. Can I tell you what your name is? Christian. Christ. One. Christ follower. For your name's sake, Lord Jesus Christ, you will lead me and guide me. Man, it doesn't say for my name's sake. So this is what gets us in trouble. If we think the basis of God's help is something good in you or me, or the basis of God's non-help is something flawed or sinful in you or me, we're in trouble. It's for God. Mark, I see, but let me continue. Uh, it, it is for God's name's sake. What does that mean? Your well-being will ref- or the absence thereof will reflect on the reputation of God who promised to bring you forth. Not free from pain, not free from catastrophe, not free from up- upheaval, but who promised even in the midst of it all to lead and to guide and to have his hand upon you for his name's sake, lest the world say, look at this God. He lied to you. Oh, no. For his name's sake, we could confidently declare, oh, God, I only feel abandoned from time to time, but I'm not for your name's sake. This is the basis of the Christian's confidence. Not that we're so hot. We ain't. 
for God's name. Look, I got three sons. Their last name is Rothberg. That's all they need for dad to do anything he could possibly do for their well-being. It's just a name. I'm a Christian, a Christ one. So are you if you've accepted him. (laughs) For his name's sake. This is very, very important. So David is late. Listen, I'm going to tell you. He's laying no claim to virtue, any inherent goodness. He's not making promises he can't keep. Nothing like this. He's just leaning on the attributes of his God. You will, verse 4, pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Have you ever heard that before? Folks, we have been in Luke for the last 943 years. I round it off. Luke, in Luke, the Lord Jesus himself invoked these very words and uttered them loudly from the cross. Listen, Luke 23, verse 46. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. That is a direct quotation by the Lord of Psalm 31, verse 5, albeit in an entirely different circumstance. Notice the Lord did not quote part B of verse 5, where it says, David says, you have ransomed me, O Lord God of truth. Why didn't he quote that? Because he did not need to be ransomed. Only you and I do from sin you see so 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 here's the deal the lord jesus uttered these words prior to dying it was his declaration of confidence in what would succeed death but david invoked the words not at the point of dying at the point of living It still applies at the point. Listen, it may be easier to die for Jesus Christ than to live daily for Jesus Christ. David had to live in the midst of all kinds of who knows what. The scriptures don't say specifically what his circumstance was. And he's in trouble. But he knows he's a sinner. Do you remember Bathsheba? And do you remember Uriah, her husband, how David plotted, orchestrated the murder of her husband? Remember this? He's living with this and more like it. He is saying, I have a sinful spirit. But he's saying, I commit that spirit to you as well. I commit my sin-sick, guilt-ridden spirit to you for ransom, for forgiveness, for cleansing, and for mercy. So the troubled, desperate Christian is prone to disqualify himself or herself from God's care because you think you're a wretch. You are. But that's not a disqualifier. If you say into your hand, I commit my spirit, not just at the point of dying, but at the point of living, Oh, God, I live sometimes in ways that are sinful, but I commit all that to you for your mercy and grace and forgiveness. Into your hand, I commit 
my spirit. By the way, these words were uttered again in the New Testament. In this case, by the first martyr of the faith recorded in the New Testament, Stephen, of whom it says in Acts chapter 7, verse 59, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, into your hand I commit my spirit. And we have a record of other martyrs of the faith throughout Christian history at the point of death martyrdom, invoking Psalm 31, verse 5. But you don't have to wait for the point of death to do it. You can declare your confidence in God as a living sacrifice, not just the dying one. And you could say, I'm guilty, I'm ashamed, I feel like a wretch, I don't fit in, I feel like a worm, but I commit all that. I commit that spirit to you, oh God. Based on your righteousness, you are my rock. You are my stronghold. You throw yourself upon the mercy of God. You take that spirit of yours, weak and unsettled though it may be, and you commit it just as David did, just as Stephen did, just as the Lord did. You commit it to the grace and mercy of almighty God. David says in verse 6, I hate, strong word, those People who regard vain idols. Is there justification for that kind of thing? I don't know. I'm just reading it to you. There's a collection of words in the Psalms called words of imprecation. Some Psalms are called the imprecatory Psalms. That sounds like a rough word. It's meant to. An imprecatory Psalm is a Psalm like this where The psalmist says, oh, God, judge, condemn, I hate. You say as Christians, we're supposed to be nice people. We're not supposed to hate, you know, other people. But you have the imprecatory psalms. How do you justify them? I don't know. It's a subject for another day. I mean it. I'm not trying to avoid it, but it's a subject for another day. Here we see David quite unabashed about expressing his hatred for people who do what? They regard, they trust in vain idols as opposed to the living God. A vain idol is illusory. It's an imaginary, fictitious creation of man's. David says, good night. Oh, God, you're the refuge. People are looking for refuges in their own fashion. They're creating out of the, according to their creative imaginations. For I hate them. Why is he hating? I don't know. I don't know if he's justified in hating them or not. That's. I don't know. You figure it out. But that's what he says. He said, verse 7, I'll rejoice and be glad. In what? Your loving kindness. One of the bestest words in all of the Bible. It's the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed. Special word. It means steadfast love. It means love not of an erotic, uh, romantic kind, which is in place as long as the object of love is lovable. That's, you know, we love each other that way. I really love you until you don't treat me right. Then I can't stand you. I hate your guts. You know, I'm not talking about that fickle human love. No, no, no. Chesed love, that's a God love. That's a love that persists in spite of the object of the love. So though the object of love changes, like us, we have our ups and downs, you know, The lover remains a steadfast lover. 
David says, I'm rejoicing in that. I have my ups and downs. Sometimes I sin. I have flaws. I have mood swings. Whatever the deal is. But the source of my joy is that what never changes is your loving kindness. So David finds joy in a characteristic or attribute of God. First, loving kindness, but here's a second. Because you have seen my affliction. You have known the troubles of my soul. This is the second thing David takes confidence in. It's not just that you love. How could you say you love me if you don't even know me? How could you say you love me if you don't attend to me? If you don't know what I'm going through? (gasps) But you do. You have known the troubles. Have you ever had a trouble, an issue on the inside that is so painful? You don't have words to communicate it. If someone were to say, what's going on with you? It's not that you're withholding. You just can't verbalize it. That's what, you know what David is saying? But you know what's going on inside. I don't have words to explain it, but I don't have to. You love me by knowing me. And though you know me, you love me. Think about that. If we were to reveal to each other all the stuff about ourselves, class attendance would go down. (laughs) We wouldn't hang out. And that's why we don't reveal everything. Someone wrote a book. I'm afraid to tell you who I am. Because I'm all I got. And if you reject me, I don't have any place to go. So that's why we clothe ourselves in these things, but also literally. We're very careful about what we disclose and expose to others because we're fearful. But Almighty God knows everything about the troubled one and still manifests chesed love. I'm telling you, that's extraordinary. That's great. Really, really great. You have known the troubles of my soul. And though you know, look at verse 8, you have not given me over into the hand of the enemy. Look at that. Here's how your love is manifested. You attend to me. You know everything about me. And though you know everything about me, it has not driven you from me. Oh, no, you've not given me over. Look, Verse 5, into your hand I commit my spirit. Now, verse 8, therefore, you've not given me over into the hand of the enemy. Hand is a metaphor used repetitively in Psalm 31. You had in verse 5, David said, I made a choice. I'm committing myself into your hand. What's the result? Now, here we get verse 8. Therefore, uh, you're not going to turn me over to the hand of the enemy. That's the choice. There's no other option. Who has his hold on you? It's either the God of this world, Satan, or its Savior. That's the way it is. If you commit yourself, your spirit, into the hand of God, you will not be given over to anybody else's hand. That's just the way it is. It's just a choice. There's no option C, just A or B. David said, I made this choice. Into your hand I commit my spirit. And you've not given me over into the hand of the enemy. In fact, he says, you've set my feet in a large place. So another metaphor. What does that mean? Oh, God, 
in spite of the fact that the world is squeezing on me and the evil one is squeezing on me and my sin is squeezing uh, uh, and I'm being diminished? No. You've opened me up to grand possibilities. I can still be fully available to serve and be useful to you for your glory. You, by your grace, your righteousness, your loving kindness, you have set me in a wide open place. Listen to me. Don't let the news squeeze you into an emotional shell of defensive siege mentality. Oh, no. If your spirit is committed into the hand of the Lord, you're in a wide open place. Even this increasingly dangerous, upsetting world situation, you can still be useful to the kingdom and to the king who has put you into a wide place. So the scriptures, uh, oh yes, Mary. Yeah, yeah. Mary, that is so good. The hate, which looks like power, is not, puts us, that is so good. You know, uh, we're not going to get a suitable explanation for such a horrific loss. Uh, But what we're asking for is a fresh revelation of God. Job, 42 chapters, tremendous loss, even of children, never got an explanation. But he said in chapter 42, I've heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. So we're praying even through all of the tumult that God would visit us with a fresh revelation of himself so that even though we lack explanation, we can trust him more and the dear people in Connecticut can trust him more. Everyday things. Mary, don't you think Psalm 31 is, I mean, this is God's word, isn't it? It really relates to life. Look, verse 9. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm in distress. Now, wait just a second. You see the vacillating, fluctuating? He's praising, but now he's crying out again. See it? So this is the ebb and flow of faith and emotion Be gracious to me, O God. I'm in distress. My eye is wasted away from grief. My soul and my body also. You know what that is? That is a description of depression. That's depression. In fact, he's so depressed, it's affecting him bodily. Emotions could do that because everything's connected the way God made us, you see? I want to tell you something. God's grace does not keep the Christian from trouble. It manifests itself in the trouble. You see it? So here now you have the language of, look, more of depression. Ten, my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. Now look, my strength has failed me because of my iniquity. 
and my body has wasted away. Now look, just a few minutes and I'll close with this. But this is important, controversial. And there you have it. <clears throat> is David saying his present situation is due to his sin? Iniquity is another word for sin. Here's the answer. Yes and no. What do I mean? All that befalls us today is due to what happened way back in Genesis when our forebears decided to disobey God. It became part of our nature, was passed on. So yes, everything we wrestle with today, environmental degradation, inclination to sin, immorality, unsettledness, even immoral indebtedness, the likes of which our country is in the throes of, Everything is traceable, no question about it, to sin, no question. However, the immediate or proximate cause of your present affliction may not be sin. Here's what I mean. If you're depressed today, it's not necessarily because you sinned yesterday. Troops come back from Afghanistan and Iraq and all the rest. They can't sleep. They can't smile. They can't handle loud noises, and they don't want to come to church because of the crowds. Would you dare preach down at them? Would you say, chin up, be strong, where's your faith? Could you please tell me what sin they've committed? It's not a sin to be a target of enemy fire. It's not a sin to weep over the fact that your buddy right there is dead. Would you preach to them about their faith? Would you preach down to them? So here's the deal. Their particular emotional straits, the proximate cause is it is not any wrongdoing, though our wrongdoing traced to our forebears is surely the result of all sin. So what am I getting at? There are two major errors, in my opinion, that are made. And they have the same result. They kill people. They hurt them. One is what I call material reductionism. Now, hang in there with me. I just make up these words. Material reductionism. What does that mean? If you have a need, you're troubled, depression, anxiety, who knows what. And you go to certain counselors, maybe a friend, maybe someone that I don't know what. There are certain people I call them material reductionists. What does that mean? They reduce everything to a physical process. They say it's chemical imbalance. It's a disorder. Of, I don't know what it is. They blame it only on, on, on what you can see. They take out all spiritual realities. There is no God. There is no Holy Spirit. There is no Satan. There is no eternity. So, so they extract spiritual realities from their counseling. Those are called material reductionists. Generally, those are unbelievers. But then on the other side are folks I call spiritual reductionists, and those are many of us, some of us. What's a spiritual reductionist? That's a well-meaning Christian who doesn't allow, when you're struggling, for anything but that your sin has led you to it. They reduce everything to that spiritual reality. Those are people who will force your feelings underground, and now they've added to it shame. Spiritual reductionists, you see, but listen to me. It's not that simple. We can neither be a material reductionist or a spiritual. Why? Because the Bible says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. For instance, 
You see this thing on the top of our shoulders? That is an organ. It's an organ, like a heart is an organ or a liver is an organ. Organs sometimes go awry. This magnificent organ does tremendous things. It, it controls signals, neurons, cells, brain cells, talk. How do they communicate over a roadway? Not of concrete, but of liquids. They're called chemicals. If those chemicals get out of whack, out of balance, you could be depressed. You could have anxiety. You could have interrupted sleep patterns. All of these things. Why do we Christians allow someone to have a problem with this organ? Oh, really? You're having a heart cath? Oh, we're praying for you. Oh, okay. Why? Why do we allow? Oh, your liver? Oh, your kidney has you? You need like dialysis? Okay, you got praying for you. Oh, you're depressed? Why don't you repent? I didn't say all depression is due to a chemical imbalance. There's something we call in the trade differential diagnosis. Why am I using all these big words? Because some of you are counseling and you have no business doing it because you don't know what you're talking about and you're hurting people. Differential diagnosis, what does that mean? The same collection of symptoms may be attributable to different diagnoses. For instance, I was a missionary in Germany. I had the privilege of discipling a guy. I mean, a muscle-laden, good-looking, athletic, great sense of humor guy, growing like crazy in Christ. I got a new assignment. And then I got a call from a friend, mutual friend, who said, have you heard about so-and-so? He's just a shell of the person you used to know him to be. He's lost weight. He doesn't hang out. He's reclusive. What's up? What's up? What's up? What happened with this person? Well, a lot of Christians went to him. How's your prayer life? Uh, uh, get in touch with known sin. There's got to be sin in your life. You got to confess your sin. Boom, boom, boom. Spiritual reductionist. Finally, a non-Christian friend said to him, hey, have you had a physical? Brilliant. He went to get a physical. You know what the diagnosis was? Hypoglycemia. You know what hypoglycemia could do sometimes? Cause tremendous mood swings. So spiritual reductionist Christians who don't know any better would say there's sin in your life. Some medication and a dietary correction and now this guy is doing really well. I didn't, I'm not attributing, don't misunderstand. One time I counseled the guy, he said, I'm really depressed. And I did a little study. He was sleeping with his secretary, a married guy. You're darn tootin' you're depressed. I did not help him out of it. That depression was a warning signal. You're outside the will of God. Confess it and repent it and repent of it and know the peace of God. So don't misunderstand. My point is don't reduce complex human behavior into this or that. It's usually all of the above, including Satan. Listen to me. If you're depressed, even from physiological reasons, the evil one can still move in and take advantage of it. And you could still have sin. So what you usually need is someone balanced or a team of helpers who will approach spiritual warfare issues. Sin gives ground to Satan. Who will approach physiological medical issues and who will approach physical 
uh, excuse me, spiritual issues. I love Psalm 31 and the rest of the Psalms because in this songbook, you get the complexity of human behavior. Oh, there's sin. Oh, there's Satan. And there's also, listen to me, even if you have sinned and you're depressed because of it and you repent of it, if you've stayed in unrepented sin for long enough and it's a prolonged period of depression, you could have on a long-term basis affected a chemical imbalance and all the preaching in the world ain't going to fix it any more than all the preaching in the world is going to clear out your cholesterol-laden blood vessels. You need medical assistance. So don't be a material reductionist. There is Satan. There is spirit. There is sin. But don't be a material reductionist. Those are Christians looking for simplistic explanations to complex human behavior and are counseling way above their expertise. And some of you have been warned about Christian counseling because of it. Just repent of sin. Sin, correct, all from Genesis. But sin is not necessarily the proximate cause of all things that befall you. So be careful about Okay, so that's my, that's pretty controversial stuff because we're actually a divided body of Christ, I must tell you. I can't uh, tell you how many people come to me. Uh, you know, they don't think a Christian ever should take medication. That's a lack of faith. Why do you take insulin shot? Why is, why do you, t- that's an organ, isn't it? Insulin, what does that treat? What is an insulin? Diabetes, what organ? Is that a liver or something? Pancreas. Or a pancreas. Why can't the pancreas get out of whack and we go to get medication, but the head goes out of whack, and that's a lack of faith. Tell me. You just tell me. Now, I'm not one of these guys who says everything you do wrong is a mental disorder. That's material reductionism. I'm just saying stay back. Don't jump to conclusions. Pray, oh, God, give us wisdom so we can do differential diagnosis to see what a person needs. That's an organ for crying out loud. That is an organ, just like everything else. And this generates all kinds of... Yeah, brother. Yeah, yeah, Joe. Ooh, that's great. See, that's what they did. It's called the doctrine of retributive justice. Remember they said, if you do good, it will be good. If you do bad, it will be bad. Because it's bad... It must be because you did bad. See, those are called spiritual reductionists. They attribute everything to sin. Who was God mad at in Job? His counselors. Remember that? That's excellent. Thank you for doing that. Listen, folks, we better go because I'm over uh, time. So here's what happens the next time we get together, which who knows when that's going to be. Oh, we'll do more of Psalm 31 and maybe Psalm 32 a little bit. Something like that. Lord Jesus, we're growing together. We have an exchange of ideas. We're open to each other's perspectives. We grow. We don't have it all together. So we learn. I hope this has been a learning experience, but not the final word, because maybe I spoke amiss. I want to learn too. So we're on a journey. This we know for sure. You are this righteous one, David, petitioned. You are the stronghold, the rock. 
Your loving kindness is the basis of our joy. Because you have laid hold of us, we cling to you. Oh God, our refuge. Lord Jesus, would you get lots of glory for your namesake out of us for as long as you would have us here. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God.